friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today on Conversations with Consequences, we will be concentrating on religious freedom. We'll be talking to Gia Chacon. She is the founder of For the Martyrs, and she is the organizer of March for the Martyrs. We also will be talking to our dear friend, Father Ben Keeley of Nazarene.org. He wants to tell us about the impact of the coronavirus on our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who suffer already from religious persecution. Things have gotten much tougher for them since COVID added another layer of difficulty to their lives. But first, with the RNC now wrapped up and the 2020 election just around the corner, I invited our friend Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network to talk to us about President Trump's record on appointing rule of law judges and what we could expect from a Joe Biden presidency. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Carrie. Great to be here. Carrie, you're the head of the Judicial Crisis Network. Can you tell us what that is and what you guys do? Yeah, we are an organization founded to try to ensure the confirmation of judges who are going to be faithful to the law and the Constitution. So not judges who are sitting there trying to enact their own personal politics, but who really feel they are bound by what the Constitution says and what our laws passed by elected representatives are saying. So that sounds like a good plan. <laughs> we think so. We think that's the best way to you know, keep our constitutional system in check and uh, to have judges who, who understand their limited role. Many Americans, and some of these Americans I know myself, voted for President Trump, and they gave us their primary reason, uh, upcoming Supreme Court vacancies. They wanted to see rule of law judges appointed and not judges that would legislate from the bench to achieve uh, points on the progressive agenda. I can assume that this is something that the Judicial Crisis Network also wanted to see from President Trump. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, I've I've been doing this for 10 years, and there is no more exciting time to be working in this area than now, because we have seen across the board, you know, not obviously people are most familiar with the Supreme Court vacancies, but the judges that President Trump has put on the court are doing exactly that. And I think it's people that you don't always hear about, because, you know, a few of them are familiar with with people like Amy Coney Barrett, for example, because of her uh, fiery confirmation hearing. But there are also a ton of other judges on all of these different circuits who are really making a difference. Think of a recent decision uh, by Kyle Duncan on on the uh, Fifth Circuit uh, having to do with making sure that abortions don't get exempted from uh, from COVID guidelines limiting uh, limiting elective surgeries or saying, you know, it's a quixotic undertaking to try to make courts uh, change their pronouns on behalf of transgender rights. We've got uh, Lisa Branch on the 11th Circuit who's talking about the importance of upholding state voter ID laws. Uh, Amwaltha Parr on the Sixth Circuit, uh, who has some great decisions on religious liberty in the context of COVID particularly. Um, and as I mentioned, Amy Coney Barrett, she had some amazing decisions on the Second Circuit and on due process, making sure that, for example, young men who are uh, accused in college campuses are actually given due process as required under the Constitution. So we're seeing a real sea change across the court uh, in judges who are being faithful to the rule of law and standing up for those principles. You said this was an exciting time to be doing what you're doing. I would propose it's an exciting time for two reasons. Number one, because you're having a time where you're seeing some success that maybe would not have happened, or I think we can probably, we can be pretty sure wouldn't have happened under a Hillary administration. But Mm -hmm. also, and tell me if this is true, also because Americans in general seem to have woken up to the necessity of rule of law judges. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think the 2016 election certainly showed us how important that was to people, realizing you know the number of Americans, more than a fifth of Americans said that was their number one issue going to the polls was was courts. And you realize that all of the, you know, all of the things we fight for with our elected 
representatives and trying to make sure you have the right person in the governor's seat or in the White House. All of that can be undone by an activist judiciary. If you have judges that are are refusing to read the laws as they're passed or refusing to stand by our constitutional guarantees. Um, And so I think people really recognize that those judges, you know, for example, our our freedom of religion, it's it's in the Constitution. And that's incredibly important. But it doesn't the Constitution can't defend itself if you don't have judges that are willing to stand up and enforce those constitutional rights. And so it, it couldn't be more important to have solid, principled judges in those seats. Do you think that as the cultural, ter- the really strong cultural changes that have overtaken our country in the last few decades, in which you almost have like two different Americas living together but separately, do you think that um, that feeling has activated Americans, their consciousness that the courts are that important and that only the courts can defend them from the other America? Oh, well, I think there's a lot of people who feel that. I think the challenge is courts can't fix the culture war, right? Right. right. On one level, this is this is the challenge is we're in this situation because there is an important culture war that needs to be that, that, that needs to be fought. And that's not the role of judges, but they are there. They really, in, in terms of preserving our religious freedom, for example, our right, right to free speech, all of these core values in the Constitution, that's what makes it even possible to continue to have these debates because you know that you then have the the ability to have a a discussion and a debate on these most important topics to us Uh, otherwise you have you could have what what you know happens in all too many places where you know one side wins and they just shut the other side down we have a system that embraces freedom of of, uh, speech and being able to debate these issues, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience. And that's so important to have courts there to make sure that that is still available, even at times when it feels like, you know, there are are areas in which the culture war is is, is very discouraging. And also this openness to dialogue, the freedom of religion, freedom of speech. None of this is possible unless we have constitutionalist judges defending Mm -hmm. the Constitution from uh, what seems to be these days a constant assault on our on our most basic freedoms absolutely and and we're we, you know we're seeing it we saw it we've seen a lot of cases and that kind of alluded to in the context of this pandemic where you have religious freedom rights that are getting uh, trampled and, and people saying well you know basically uh, that is not an essential service worshiping god is somehow not essential and that's that's contrary to what our founding documents tell us that in fact that is the reason that that people came here in to america in the first place this is our, our very core value so we need to have uh, courts that are willing to stand up for those core values even when unfortunately sometimes our elected officials maybe don't personally respect them as much as they do we can at least uh, rely on those founding documents on our constitution, on our state constitutions, and on our laws, like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to say, no, no, this is an American value that is incredibly important. And in the process of, uh, you know, dealing with all of these other crises in our life, we can't forget the values that we hold most dear in the first place. I found that this time of pandemic, this time of lockdowns, and, and the arbitrary imposition of, I say arbitrary, because it's not these, um, the lockdown and the, the, the restrictions, on, on gathering are imposed in a very arbitrary way in ways that seem unfair to religious Americans. I've been hearing this from all across the country and I do feel that it's going to be an element in the upcoming election where people are going to go to the polls with the same idea that they want to see another administration that will put constitutionalist judges on the court as President Trump has done. Yeah, and I think the the contrast between the kind of judges too that, that uh, Trump has promised to put on the court and the kind of judges that uh, we fear Joe Biden would put on the court is even more ex- extreme this year than I think it probably ever has been. You have a much louder and more fervent left that that is really willing to abandon a lot of these core principles, whether it's due process, whether it's race blindness, whether it's respect for other people who disagree with you what, mm-hmm. on, on religious issues or on, you know, on other issues. Uh, those used to be something that I feel like across the board, Americans could really agree on. And I really feel like for the most part, that's something that people in both parties still do want. But there is a very vocal and loud <laughs> 
group, particularly on the left, pushing Biden very much in the opposite direction, away from those kind of the, the, the um, principles that America was founded on, where we can have that free debate and really into a into a much more aggressive uh, mode. And, and if you have judges then that are going to have that approach, then, then I think you have to really be frightened in terms of the, you know, the direction our country is going to go. You now have some people suggesting that maybe his plan is to have Kamala Harris take a, a lead role in the judiciary. We know she's on the Judiciary Committee right now as a senator. And if you look at her record, uh, you know, she is even farther to the left. She's probably the most most extreme member of the Senate on some of these issues. And the, fa- the idea that that could be the person who's directing the direction of the judiciary, it's very frightening to think that the judges could be chosen for such uh, partisan political ends rather than, than some people who are going to be upholding some of the just the, the basic neutral principles that our Constitution embraces. Well, you brought up Kamala Harris, and it seems to a lot of Americans that she is a really consequential vice presidential pick because of uh, Joe Biden's what seems to be an advanced dementia, or anyway, getting advanced. Mm-hmm. She might be somebody that we need to contend with on a presidential level, not a vice presidential level, and if she becomes vice president. She has already shown uh, what seems to be animus towards religious uh, liberty when it comes to, to the judicial uh, appointments and judicial um, during the confirmation hearings. Tell us about what she has, sh- what she's shown her hand. What is her hand? Yeah. So she had, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned Amy Coney Barrett's hearing that was with Senator Feinstein. who said, remember the dogma lives loudly within That's you. True. And we all were shocked, right? Going, oh my gosh, how could someone be so directly attacking someone basically for their Catholic faith? Well, maybe by the time Kamala Harris did it, people were, were, less shocked by it because it had been done before, but she did a very similar thing with a district court nominee, Brian Bushner, who was a member of the Knights of Columbus, and she grilled him on the fact that he was a member of an organization that, as she put it, was hostile to women's rights, was hostile to transgender rights. I think that for her, that's code for believes the church is teaching about marriage yes. and <laughs> about you know the, the, the sanctity of human life from birth and from, from, from conception till natural death. And so the fact that she would go so far, and she asked him a whole series of questions about, well, were you aware of the fact that this organization held these these terrible positions when you joined it? And I'm going, you know, the Knights of Columbus is a fraternal organization that does incredible amounts of charitable work. I mean, anyone, I'm sure people who listen to this podcast are familiar with the organization. Of this course. is hardly the, uh, you know, the, the, the frightening organization she's trying to put it out to. And if, and if, if her concern is that someone who actually believes what the Catholic Church teaches about these issues is unfit for high office, then it makes me wonder, does she think Joe Biden believes what the Catholic Church is teaching? Because he, he claims to be Catholic too, right? The, the idea that she thinks being a, holding to the church's position disqualifies you from public office is really shocking, not to mention unconstitutional, because the Constitution literally says there is no religious test for office. It, that that really concerns me, right? Because this, is, this suggests that her view of what a judge is to do eliminates you know, it, it, the, the most uh, common religion in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, those are beliefs that are held not just by Catholics, but by most Protestants, by many Jews, Muslims, etc. It's really, it's really an extreme position. I wonder how she squares that attack on on that on that judge, his Catholic, his normal mainstream Catholicism. I mean, to all sure. of us, the the Knights of Columbus are just this great homegrown organization that our brothers and and husbands belong to, and they help the poor. And when it, you know they distribute coats for the people who don't have them, they, they make pancakes. They after make pancakes mass. after mass. Exactly. The, the the talk about the the salt of the earth. It's the salt of the earth. I wonder how mm-hmm. she squares that attack with a a, a candidate. Joe Biden, who is touting his faith as a Catholic and how important that's going to be when he leads the country as he would like to do. Yeah, I, I, it, it's very strange to me. I, I, either she doesn't seem to think that he embraces those same Catholic positions or she's very cynical about about that position. Maybe she herself just kind of, as she mentioned, thinking of herself as just the heir apparent and doesn't have to worry about his uh, views on it. But it it is a hostility to core Christian values that it should be very worrisome 
uh, to people going forward because it says to me no one who holds to traditional Christian teaching is is welcome in this administration. That's that's unconstitutional. And that's un-American. Well, that's really scary, Carrie. And I wonder when you wrote a whole book with Molly Hemingway called Justice on Trial and the Future of the Supreme Court, and you wrote it. It's mostly about the Kavanaugh hearing. And was was there religious anti-religious animus as part of all that? How do you how would you characterize that? Uh, well, there there were hints of it. I think anytime they started going down the route of Roe underscored some of the and, and abortion underscored some of this to a, such a deep extent that I think you couldn't help but bring that in. But Kamala Harris was a real leader in that anti-Kavanaugh effect too. And I think when you saw the uh, the way that places like Georgetown Prep were being maligned in the in the way they were portrayed, there was this you know an, an anti-Catholic I think undercurrent going on there as well. And you certainly saw the way that she was willing to on on the finished shreds of evidence uh, and, and lack of evidence undermine someone's character so profoundly. It was really shameful. She had, a, even from before the Blasey Ford hearing came out, Harris was trying to use the Kavanaugh confirmation to really raise her national profile. She was made headlines because she had so many thousands, literally like three, 600 different Facebook ads that she was running through this campaign. She had, she was trying to attack Kavanaugh with these gotcha questions about, oh, did you talk to this a certain person at this law firm about this topic? And he's going, I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, I think you know who I'm talking about. She's <laughs> like, ah. She was really using it as a, just a political mission for her to, to raise her national profile and then ultimately did end up running for president as a result of that profile. So it's it's very worrisome. She was passing on completely unsubstantiated and, and unfounded allegations in this heyday of, of when everyone was kind of jumping on a bandwagon, feeling like they could write more or less any uh, scurrilous allegation against Kavanaugh and get it taken seriously. And she, at the time, said, even though the FBI had gone done an additional investigation of the process, even though the Senate Judiciary Committee had reopened its hearing, had a whole additional day of testimony on this. She claimed that was still not enough investigation into Kavanaugh, which we later learned was pretty much just a political ploy because similar charges, in fact, more serious charges against Joe Biden, she's willing to ignore. So so it's very concerning to see the level of, of cynicism with which she has used judicial nominations in her own political career. Carrie, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want you to, if you can, give me a brief snapshot for people who are considering their vote in November. As far as the Supreme Court and on all the other uh, federal courts, what can we expect from a Trump administration and a Joe Biden administration? A brief snapshot of each one. Yeah, so what we've seen so far from Trump is he has put a record number of judges on the appellate courts who have are characterized by commitment to the Constitution and the rule of law, to the, the laws that they're passed. It doesn't mean that they always even vote for what would look like a conservative cause, but that they are committed to voting for what our laws say. That would stick us with the constitutional system where it's our own elected representatives who write the laws. Joe Biden has refused to say who he would put on the Supreme Court or the lower appellate courts, but we've seen those, those on the left who are lobbying him hardest, who are arguing for putting people on who aren't even don't even have a judicial background, but whose background is in advocacy for dozens of far left causes, including many that are that are openly hostile to uh, to the Catholic and, and Christian faith. Well, thank you, Carrie. That's uh, those are very vivid pictures you paint for us, and and I think they're very useful as we all ponder this upcoming election, which will have tremendous consequences for America. And thank you, Carrie. It's always such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for your time. And our listeners can learn more about your work and read your take on things impacting the law and courts. Judicialnetwork.com. Is that right? That's right. That's correct. Okay. Well, thank you. And uh, and I hope things are going well with you and your family. Yeah, thank you. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Gia. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for giving a platform to the plight of the persecuted Christians. Well, we think about the persecuted Christians a lot. And we are very aware that a recent report shows that there are over 260 million Christians persecuted for the faith right now across the globe. So how does your organization specifically work to help these modern day martyrs, Gia? Well, For the Martyrs seeks to raise awareness about the crisis of Christian persecution, advocate for religious freedom, and provide aid to suffering Christians across the globe. And one of the number one ways that we're raising awareness about the crisis of Christian persecution is through our social media. We reach over 2 million accounts weekly, um, just raising awareness about the rising levels of Christian persecution across the globe. And coming up this Saturday, we are also hosting the first ever march in United States history to stand in solidarity with the persecuted Christians, March for the Martyrs. So at March for the Martyrs on September 5th, we're going to hold a public demonstration to not only stand in solidarity and raise public awareness about the growing crisis of Christian persecution, but also come together as the body of Christ in the West and pray for the persecuted around the world. Gia, you know, when you say the word march these days, you're obviously in company with a lot of other marches that are taking uh, place in the United States. Did you plan this march after the latest round of protests, or is this something that you've been planning for some time? We've been planning this for a while, and you know, um, it's true, across the United States, marches are breaking out and every year we have marches for life which are so beautiful and I believe that so much has um, come out of the marches for life and in the west we march for life we march to celebrate we march for our rights and now for the first time in United States history we will be marching to stand in solidarity with the persecuted Christians I wonder if people's attention spans will be able to stretch to hold such an important thing as our persecuted brothers and sisters do you think our attention spans as Americans can do that? I think that it can and you know honestly I truly believe that with the pandemic and the effect that it has on American Christians specifically. We've seen our churches be closed for the first time. A lot of us have never had an experience where we haven't been able to go and worship God in Mass. We've never really felt before now what it feels like to have our churches closed, to have worship restricted, and to have mandates on what is permitted and what is not permitted when we go to worship God. So I think that this suffering that American Christians have felt for the first time with this pandemic has actually led to an increased compassion and empathy for our brothers and sisters that are persecuted in the different countries. Also, we've seen a rise in attack on Catholic churches specifically. We've seen arson and targeted attacks on Catholics. We've seen Christian property destroyed, and all of that has just deepened the empathy of the Christians of the West to the persecuted, to our persecuted brothers and sisters. And I think that this march is very timely. Again, we've seen Christian persecution skyrocket in the past two years. Christian persecution has risen over 20%. So what we're doing through March for the Martyrs is needed now more than ever. And now more than ever, Christians of the West have an opportunity to rise up, pray for our brothers and sisters, and be their voice. I really agree with that point you're making, Gia. When I was uh, separated from the Mass for about two months, I spent a lot of time thinking about all our co-religionists around the world are don't ever have the, the comfort of a daily Mass or even a Sunday Mass or even any mass that they can ever feel safe attending and not not being made potential targets just by accessing the beautiful gift that is our mass. Absolutely. And again, I think that this just deepens the empathy of Christians of the West. And a lot of times when we look at Christian persecution, when we're sitting in the comfort of our parishes or we're sitting in the comfort of our homes, it can seem like this issue is so far away. Or a lot of people might ask the question, how can I make a difference in the life of a persecuted Christian? But we know that when one member of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. And we have a biblical mandate, as it says in Proverbs 31, 8, to be a voice for the voiceless. A moment ago, you mentioned that the number of persecuted has risen by at least 20% over the last couple of years. What factors do you think have led to this rise? Well, there are different factors. We see the number two or the top two factors that play into the persecution of Christians 
are extreme nationalism and also Islamic extremism. So we've seen the rise of, for example, not just in the Middle East, but also specifically in Nigeria, we've seen the rise of Islamic extremism over the past five years where there's an ongoing genocide of Christians in Nigeria where Christians are being targeted by Islamic radical groups and pushed out of their villages. And as I said, it's a genocide that's taking place. Not only are they being pushed out of their villages, daughters and wives are being kidnapped, people are being slaughtered, and churches are being burned. So we have, again, the rise of radical groups in certain regions, specifically in the Middle East and Nigeria. And then we have extreme nationalism, where we have communist regimes that are increasing the pressure that they're putting on Christian citizens. And for example, in places like North Korea, it's illegal to worship a god. So in North Korea, they make you worship the ruler or the the uh, president as the deity. So if you're found with even a page from the Bible or even a scripture written down, that is enough cause to be arrested, put in a labor camp, and also to have your family and friends arrested. Wow. It's amazing when you stop and think about all the millions of people that live under regimes like this. For instance, in China, where I know that the Chinese government, the communist government, is um, is strengthening all their repression of all people of faith, but especially Christians. Yes, and in China especially, we've seen in the last few years, and again, we came out of communism, there was an extreme communist regime in the 80s and the 70s that was Christians were very heavily persecuted. And we kind of came out of that and we saw more religious freedom in the 90s and into the 2000s. But now we're seeing again the rise of this communist regime putting the restrictions specifically on Christians. We've seen cases where the government has come in and mandated what can be in the Bible. They've changed the Ten Commandments, um, air quotes around change, but they're putting a mandate to change the Ten Commandments to align with the um, regime. And we've also seeing crosses be removed from churches. And if Christians don't comply to these uh, mandates by the state, then Christians are put in jail. They're faced with extra fining. They're faced with having their electricity, water, and food supply cut off. And again, they're faced with imprisonment and labor camps. Well, thank God, Gia, that people like you are shining a spotlight on on this terrible persecution that's going on across the globe. How can our listeners learn more and also contribute uh, to your project? Well, we invite everyone to march with us this Saturday on September 5th in Long Beach, California at the March for the Martyrs. Although we're raising awareness about such a serious topic, we also want to emphasize the element of hope that Christian persecution will not be ignored. Suffering Christians, suffering believers are not forgotten, and Jesus Christ still has the victory. And you can find more about the March for the Martyrs at ForTheMartyrs.com. Well, thank you so much, Gian. We'll be sure to do all of those things. Coming up next, we continue our conversation on modern-day martyrs with Father Benedict Keeley, founder of Nazarene.org. Stay tuned right here on EWTN Radio. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we continue our conversation on the persecuted Christians across the world with our good friend, Father Benedict Keeley. He's the founder of Nazarene.org, and he works to help defend and support those persecuted for their faith all over the world, but especially in the Middle East. Welcome to the show, Father Ben. Thank you, Gracie. It's always wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful that you can join us from all across the ocean. You're in England, but unfortunately, you were meant to be here in the United States, were you not? I was hoping to be at this event uh, on Saturday, on today, uh, for the March for the Martyrs. You've just heard from the founder. Unfortunately, because of COVID and insurance, medical insurance and all this kind of crazy stuff, I'm not able to travel, but I'm hoping to be back very soon. But yeah, sadly, I can't be at the, at the great event today. And where you are in England, how are things looking COVID-wise? Well, I think it's doing pretty well, but we seem to be uh, all over the world. There seem to be lots of cases, but not that many people actually now dying or in hospital. But the government seem to be enjoying keeping us under their thumb and controlling us day and night. So um, there's a little bit of rebellion, but um, 
No, it's it's. I, I'm more worried about, as we'll talk, I'm sure, in a few moments. It's, I'm more worried about how it's affecting the Christians in the, in the Middle East. Uh, uh, it's quite bad there. I was just talking to Gia Chacon, the founder of For the Martyrs and the organizer of this march that you were meant to be at today. And we were talking about how how much uh, of, of our sympathies have been awakened for persecuted Christians in, in, in troubled areas of the world because, as you mentioned, of the pandemic and, and the lockdowns. And if these things are hurting us, how much they must be hurting people who already start off at a great disadvantage as far as religious freedom and economic opportunities. Right. Well, they're affecting them very badly. I mean, I have regular contact with priests and uh, archbishops in Syria and Iraq and friends and I'm hearing how how bad things in Syria in particular even today I spoke with a friend he says that people are now almost having to decide whether they pay their rent or whether they eat he said that most people are becoming vegetarians because they can't afford any meat and the very poor are living just on bread he said there's a need for example to start soup kitchens and they're very worried about the winter because deaths will be much worse same in Iraq it's not it's not quite as bad but the cases are, are rising and it's def- difficult to get obviously hospitalization they don't have ICU units uh, for example our charity might be helping soon to just send some ordinary oxygen machines you know the, the cheaper oxygen machines just to help people having breathing difficulties so it's it's almost one thing after another and the real pain strangely enough has been like we've experienced all of us in the free world our churches is being shut for the persecuted to have been driven out by ISIS from their churches but now to have their churches that they're free to go to closed because of the virus has been really a terrible pain for them and we can't really really even imagine what it's like to to have the do- we do know what it's like to have the doors of our churches closed because we've perhaps we can share that experience with them but for them it's 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 a it's almost how many more things can they suffer you know they cry to god and say how much more do we have to suffer and they wonder why god seems to be sending this persecution it's another kind of persecution in some way, this this virus. It is a terrible addition to their burdens when their burdens are already so heavy. And what about your work, Father? How has COVID and the lockdowns impacted your direct work with these people? Well, it's a, it's, I'm laughing just because I'm, I'm in the same stage, unfortunately, as, as so many. I, I, I know so many people in the United States, all across the world and Europe uh, have lost their jobs or are possibly about to lose their jobs. They're suffering. And yes, I'm in the same boat. I haven't been able to travel. This summer, I should have been moving across the United States, speaking in different parishes, which is what I usually do, especially in the summer. Haven't been able to do any of that. Haven't been able to go to Iraq or Syria. I was due to be in Iraq twice already this year, and it's in complete lockdown. Syria is very difficult to get into anyway, but there was a possibility I could get back. So really, I've been, I'm calling my home chapel, my chapel of the persecuted. I offer mass for the persecuted and for all those who support us. I'm recording little video messages. I'm trying to write. And we are bringing in, we're sending out money. We're getting help. Thanks be to God, we are getting help to those in need in Iraq and Syria. But it's very, very difficult. It's. It, I'm not saying I'm suffering any more than anyone else because I know everyone is sharing that. But it's very, very frustrating because you want to be getting on and doing the work. Perhaps God is teaching us all some kind of lesson. I'm still trying to work out what that lesson is. But so, yeah, in a long answer to your question, Gracie, it's 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 very difficult at the moment. In those hotspots that you mentioned, uh, those hotspots of persecution for Christians, is COVID and the ensuing lockdowns, are those presenting new opportunities for the oppressors to oppress? Very, very good question. Yes. Um, speaking with my friend, a priest in Iraq just the other day, I asked him sort of specifically that. He's in a town uh, for, for the listeners, the, the Nineveh Plain, if they know that area. The Nineveh Plain is where the Christians have lived for nearly 2,000 years. Nineveh, as we know, is is Mosul today. Nineveh from the Bible where Jonah preached. And many of the Christians have gone back there. But they're now surrounded by Shia militia, 
uh, ISIS was Sunni and ISIS is resurgent. In fact, the day I spoke to my friend and I, a bomb had gone off on the road uh, one mile away from where he lives. But yes, the Shia militias now who are aligned with Iran are pressurizing the Christians. And he said uh, they're, they're, they're kind of emboldened in a way because the US is not really focused now. People's eyes are, as, as it were, turned away. So they're getting not a soft persecution. People are not being killed at the moment. What it is, is they're trying to drive them out. They're trying to drive them out first and foremost economically. For example, in the town where my friend is, we've been helping some of the businesses there and the local imam, the, the, the Muslim imam, is telling his people not to shop, not to buy from Christian shops. So that's putting pressure on them, trying to take property. It's a sort of an economic and a demographic push to push the Christians out. But there's always that threat of violence. He himself has been threatened with a gun. I, I've, I've spoken about this with you before on the show. But So it's constant tension, and they feel nervous all the time. That's the hard thing. And in Syria, within Syria, ISIS seems to be rising again. So, yes, I think the virus has been a way of taking the world's attention from from the suffering that they've been going through. I asked Gia this question, and, and I'm interested in, in hearing your opinion too. Do you think that Americans have the bandwidth to also worry about our persecuted brothers and sisters outside, <laughs> out there in, in the Middle East? Because she's holding, you guys are partic you're participating now from far away, but you're participating in this wonderful March for the Martyrs. But where do you think Americans can focus their attention on this, given everything that's going on in our country? Well, I think we must, because I've said many times, when Whenever I preach, I've preached through your kindness in, in your parish in, in Miami. And uh, I always remind Christian listeners that if we claim to be members of the body of Christ, then if one member is suffering, we're all suffering. And if we don't care about our brothers and sisters in the spirit, then we, we, we have a problem really calling ourselves Christians. I know there's so many things on our minds, but... Uh, we must. It's got to be part of our spiritual lives that we care, even if it's just prayer. And I, I, I know I say this, prayer is always a first resort. So w there's no reason why we can't be praying and aiding. We can't take our eyes off this. This is not going away. I'm sure Gia spoke strongly about it as well. Part of the reason why we're having the March for the Martyrs is precisely that reason, to remind Americans that This is going on all over the world. It's not just the Middle East. It's Nigeria. It's Africa. It's uh, Myanmar, Burma. It's I mean, it's almost every country in the world you could mention. Christian and now Europe. I mean, it's extraordinary the amount of attacks on Christian churches. I mean, people aren't being killed yet, but we know what's been going on in the U.S. this last this last summer. The number of attacks on churches, on statues, and we might say, oh well, they're just buildings. No, well, one one minute's buildings. It's not long before you go from building to people. So I think Americans need, I've never forgotten what um, the Archbishop, former Archbishop of Mosul said way back in 2014. He said, what's happening here will come to you. Now that might be a very scary warning and please God it isn't true. But I think what he means is Don't imagine that you live in freedom and it's going to, you're going to be free forever. You know, as a Cuban-American, what your family escaped from. And That's right. I've, always, I've always been impressed being with Cuban-Americans. Cuban-Americans understand almost better, like Vietnamese, America. Anyone who's come out of that oppressive climate knows it's not so far away. I mean, for you, it's literally across the ocean. But I think we need to be aware that our freedoms can be taken very, very quickly. And as an Englishman, all our laws against the church in England when we were persecuted for hundreds of years were laws. They were all passed by Parliament. They weren't the work of a tyrant like Henry VIII. Everyone identifies Henry VIII. Oh, he was the terrible man. Yes, he was. But Parliament passed laws which made it a crime to be a priest or to help a priest. So we've just got to be very, very, as the Lord said, we've got to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves because there's a potential for bad things. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm speaking to my dear friend, Father Ben Keeley, all the way from England. He does amazing work as the founder of Nazarene.org for the persecuted Christians, especially in the Middle East. But as you were mentioning, Father, 
persecution uh, seems to be in the air in the United States as well. As we watch the unrest in cities like Portland, there is there's an atmosphere also of anti of anti religious animus that I've I've seen videos of chanting anti things I can't repeat on the air, but ugly slogans being chanted anti Christian slogans by these same leftist mobs. Do you fear that uh, there's there's an an alliance here between the unrest and and anti religious sentiment that's always seems to be bubbling underneath the surface? Absolutely, as I said to you from where your family came from interesting i do a lot of work as you know with the hungarian government and i've always found a real understanding when i've gone to hungary same as in poland because when you've lived when these people have lived and come out of communist oppression they're very very aware of that link between this extreme left and the anti-christian bias and uh, americans also have been when i first came to the u.s in 1999 the idea that there'd be socialists running yeah. this Congress, but even for president, Crazy. people vote for them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we kind of laugh, but it's growing. And the, the sad thing is young people who don't know anything about history. I'm, I'm a bit rude. I say many of our young people have been educated expensively into imbecility. But they, they have. I mean, they go to a very expensive university, spend four years and come out not knowing anything about communism or that kind of oppression. And there seems to be almost a fashion today amongst young people to think socialism and communism is attractive. They forget the, the mass slaughter, uh, the oppression, day and night for, for, for decades, for, what, 70-plus years in, in Russia. And for that to be appearing in America, and there's always a hatred of Christ underneath. That, that's the weird marriage. It's a marriage made in hell between Islamic extremism, for example, and extreme left-wing uh, people. Um, because, as one of my Iraqi friends one time said, they hate the cross. I mean, we have to be spiritual about this. We have to have an understanding of the spiritual battle that we're fighting. And they hate the cross. They hate Christ, Ultimately, um, that sounds tough, but it's true. They hate Christ. And there was a video the other day of, uh, of some poor woman in, I think it was in D.C., being harangued at her table. And someone was saying, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I mean, they hate Christ. That's the devil. I'm sorry to say it's the devil. Well, there's lots to be depressed about these days. And in the United States, and that may, we, we are seeing... Gracie, we mustn't be depressed. We have to be people of hope, but we have to be people of realism. Um, that's why I said, why is a serpent an innocent as doves? Because otherwise we become, we become weary, we become, we must be as you are. I know I'm blessed to know your family so well. Um, we've got to be joyful people who love our faith, who are not afraid of defending our faith. And that's, I think, what I w would link again with the martyrs, with the March for the Martyrs, but also the suffering church is, that's the lesson they teach us. Do not be afraid of defending your faith even to the point of death. I mean, the martyrs are usually strangely very joyful. That's an extraordinary spiritual gift, I suppose. They Many times we've read our stories of the martyrs going joyfully to their death. Now that is a beautiful gift. We're not being called at the moment, please God, in America and in Europe to that, but we are being called to be joyful, perhaps under the softer persecution we're experiencing. I think, Father, that one of the things that we have as Christians is we have the, the community of Christians, that we, we have these this personal interaction, many of us on a daily basis, with our our people at Mass, and, you know, we're part of this, this great, big, beautiful tapestry. During this time of COVID and lockdown, there's been so much isolation, and we've been ripped away from all our people that we normally see and that we worship with and that we have these, these meetings of the heart with, mm -hmm. that our hearts meet under, under Jesus' gaze, and that you don't even realize it's happening until it's gone. And I think it's caused that, and in general, the isolation that we're all under, it's caused a lot of sadness, and we see a rise in suicide rates and in depression and all sorts of familial dysfunction. I wonder if you think that uh, this is also happening for the persecuted Christians, that at least in, the, in their communities, they had a lot of closeness between them. They could support each other. And now maybe some of that has been sundered because of lockdowns and, and COVID and forced separations. 
Yes, absolutely. You're 100% right, Gracie. As I said earlier, they, this has been a secondary attack on them that, that when they were driven out by evil Islamists, but now to have this enforced even when they're sort of semi-safer. But yes, you're right. It's a spiritual battle that we, we're experiencing. And, and I really do think we need, uh, St. Paul tells us we're, we're fighting against powers and principalities. And this experience we've had, you're describing across the board, is really affecting the church. The fact that church doors were locked, that people can't get to mass in the West, as you said beautifully about the community, the support Support that we have, it's it's causing real spiritual pain, almost physical pain, and I'm not sure yet where, perhaps, whether the many of the powers that be in the church realise how damaging this has been. I mean, we need to. Just today, for example, I was in London, and I went to Westminster Cathedral. Many listeners may know that if they've ever visited London, it's a big, big Catholic, it's the biggest Catholic cathedral in, in England. It's our central church, and the doors are locked. Uh, they're open for mass and then and then they're shut and they only allow a certain number in and I just wonder I think we should be doing everything in our power to give the sacraments to it's people true. to make them available not to deny the sacraments so I'm 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 again one can very easily become depressed and and critical and I am slightly critical but we've got to see that there, there's I don't know if the listeners know but in England we were rededicated as the dowry of Mary. It's an ancient medieval title, Britain, Britain, England, not Britain. England was the dowry of Mary given like in a wedding. It was a beautiful title. And we were being rededicated on the very weekend that they closed all the churches. They slammed the door shut on the very weekend that England was rededicated as the dowry of Mary. Now, if you don't see that as a spiritual <laughs> lesson, that uh, and the devil hates our lady and he slammed the door shut as we were, and we were rededicated. That's important. It was done behind closed doors, but I think that was a very powerful symbol of, of what this kind of thing has meant to us. And yes, for the persecuted even more. I keep imagining in my head the, a picture of the, the devil rubbing his hands in glee as he sees all these horrible things that have happened to us. And the way that Christians, unfortunately, are falling away from their routines and their practices. And I worry that we're not going to be able to start up again with the same fervor, that it'll take us a good amount of time to, to get back on our feet and, and fill our churches again. I, I really do well, worry about that. Uh, we remember that the word disciple comes from the same root as discipline. Someone told me, I don't know if it's true, but they said you'd, it takes 10 weeks to make a habit and 10 weeks to break a habit. And if we've been away from church for three months, four months, then for many people, the habit just of going to church has been broken. And so we have to discipline ourselves. We have to get back, get to mass, um, even if we don't feel like it. I mean, many of us, well, let's all be honest, we're, we're not all yet saints. We're hoping to be saints, but sometimes we don't actually want to go to mass particularly. But it's not about what we feel. It's what we, we do. It's our duty. As we say in the, in the Mass, it's our duty and our joy. And that's why St. Paul always used that imagery of being an athlete. You've got discipline. Um, and so you're right. I think we're right to be nervous that some people will have fallen away and perhaps will never come back. But again, trying to be positive, maybe Pope Benedict's um, famous phrase about a smaller church will perhaps come true, but a more a strengthened church and that those who are coming to mass will really really want to be there and really be dedicated so um but we need to this is the time gracie for evangelization and the suffering church teaches us that out of this suffering they're still there they're still going they're still going to mass when they're able to they're still joyful there are still vocations there are nuns in iraq and syria young nuns and so there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff going on and we mustn't see the see the clouds forever well that's that's those are very hopeful words to end on father well thank you very much father for joining us bless you gracie and now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When Jesus will speak to us about two important realities in our faith, prayer and fraternal correction. First is prayer. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in their midst. This is an incredible promise given to us by Jesus. But we first have to understand what it means and why he said it. it 
doesn't mean when, that whenever two or more Christians are in the same place doing anything, whatever, that Jesus is automatically there and blessing it. Jesus promises to be there, rather, when we are gathered in his name. Gather in Jesus' name means to gather in his person. Well, we can obviously pray to Jesus when we're alone and should. Jesus particularly incentivizes gathering together in his name to pray. Many people today think that it's sufficient to have a so-called private relationship with Jesus. They pray on their own and say that's an adequate substitution for coming to Mass or praying as a family. It's very clear, however, that Jesus wanted us to come together to pray. When his disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he taught them to pray our Father, not my Father, for the obvious reason that he wanted us to pray it with others and for others as a loving family. This leads us to the second thing Jesus teaches us in this Gospel this Sunday, what the saints have called fraternal correction. Whenever we gather together with others in the name of the one who saves us from our sins, as a family whose members deeply love each other, then it's obvious that we should always desire lovingly to help the other members of the family truly to overcome any obstacles flowing from sin that prevent communion with God or with each other. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. These stages should help us to make the effort the Lord asks of us to accompany those who make mistakes, those who sin, so that they're not lost. Whenever a brother or sister has wandered through sin, whenever he or she is going off the deep end, Jesus tells us to gather with that brother or sister in his name and try to help that sibling realize and begin to overcome his or her sin. This teaching on fraternal correction Jesus gives us is very challenging. Living in a culture that thinks the greatest value is to be nice, many believe that we should really never correct anyone else because that would make it seem, that would seem judgmental mental or offensive or harsh. They say it's important to be civil, to agree to disagree, to live and let live, to mind our own business and to be tolerant. But this mentality comes from a lack of courage, a lack of seriousness about what sin really does, and a lack of love for them and for God. If we really care about a person, we'll have the guts and the love to intervene, because we know that sin kills those who sin and does immeasurable harm to others. Another reason why Jesus' teaching on fraternal correction is challenging today is because some who misunderstand what it really means, they look at this teaching as a green light for ripping other people apart. False suffered from those who are chronic complainers, incessant naggers, who really can't say anything nice about anybody, and who use the faith as a weapon to tear others down in order to try to build themselves up. We don't want to be numbered among them for obvious reasons. But even though they need to take the planks from their eyes to see clearly before they help others charitably take the specks out of their eyes, Jesus doesn't permit us to use their bad example as an excuse. Fraternal correction for us is not an option. It's a duty of love, which we approach others as humble fellow sinners, trying to help them do better, uniting with them in the name of the Lord to battle sin together. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. The Lord is calling us to be his instruments to help our husband or wife, our son or daughter, our father or mother, our friend, boss, employee, pastor, priest, religious brother or sister, teacher or pupil. Anyone whose conduct is clearly not what the Lord wants it to be, to improve. If we know of someone living in a sinful relationship, the Lord wants you and me, like John the Baptist before Herod, to be his, his voice, calling them gently, lovingly, and firmly to conversion. Someone's addicted to drugs or booze, the Lord wants us to intervene. Someone's missing mass on Sundays, the Lord is calling us to act to try to persuade them to think about the good of their soul. If he or she is lying, cheating, stealing, cursing, gossiping, or setting bad example, the Lord is counting on us to speak to them about it and ask them to change. How do we do this? The particular means should vary from person to person, but there are a few general rules. First, we should pray for the person and ask the Lord to help us see how best to communicate his truth to him or her. Second, the saints propose that we make some small sacrifice for the person, like fasting. As Jesus teaches in the gospel, some demons are cast out only by prayer and fasting. Sacrificing for the other person also helps us do everything we're doing out of true love for the person. Third, we should act in an appropriate time and in an appropriate manner. We don't want to ambush someone when the person will be shocked and defenseless. Jesus says that we should first go to the person in private. We shouldn't write an open letter denouncing the person publicly first, but we should go to the person one-on-one with a meek and humble tone so that the other recognizes that our goal is not to make a point or to win an argument, but to win a brother or sister for God so that both of us will be brought into greater love and communion with Jesus. If it doesn't work in private, then the Lord tells us to try it with a couple other people, a person trusts, and who can be trusted to keep things in private. Hopefully the added witness and love will be enough to convince the person to correct his or her behavior, and if necessary, seek help. This is what happens, of course, 
mixed with interventions done to help alcoholics and drug users. But if the person persists in wrongdoing, Jesus says we should go to the church, to those who can join us in prayer, if the particular offense warrants it, to the hierarchy that can lovingly give the person an appropriate ecclesiastical admonition to warn of the eternal danger he or she is risking, already may be experiencing by behavior that's separating oneself from God and the community. When Jesus says that we should try to treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector if they don't heed even the church, what he means there is not to write them off, but to pray for them like we would for the conversion of those who are clearly no longer living members of our community because they're too addicted to sin. The flip side of this teaching on fraternal correction, of course, is likewise challenging. It's that when someone comes to us with a Christian correction, we should be grateful, even if at first we think the person may be off the mark. It shows us that that person cares enough about us to try to help us become more more Christ-like. These are our real friends, the ones who love us so much that they're willing to risk friendship with us to give us the help we need. We should see Jesus in them, patiently forming us into the person he calls us to be. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. As we prepare to gather on Sunday, we thank the Lord not just for remaining in our midst, but for entering inside of us, so that together with him we may be courageous in making and receiving fraternal correction, so that one day all of us may be reunited in that eternal kingdom where communion with God and with each other. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 